Give it up for Ben Kai. That's cute. Um, we're going to give it up for the Holy Spirit. We want to hear from him this morning <laughs> and uh, look at his word and see what message he has for us. Um, even though I will tell you guys, I have lobbied. I think every pastor should have an introductory song, but the elders have not approved that yet. You know, it'd be like baseball. We'd be bobbing up here, but uh, they keep saying no, but I'll keep trying. I'll keep trying. Well, good morning to everyone. What a blessing uh, it is, and happy 4th of July weekend. Uh, so I hope everybody has some time off and enjoy some time with the family, um, celebrates with some fireworks, and uh, well, not your personal fireworks, enjoying the fireworks, <laughs> and um, just spending time with family. And I pray also that, you know, we are blessed to be in this nation where we can celebrate the freedoms that came about because of independence. Uh, but it should also be a reminder to be praying for our leaders and to be praying for our country. That's what God calls us to do. So I pray you'll take that opportunity in the midst of the celebration to just set some time aside and really pray for this nation. Um, because God promises when his people pray, he will heal their nation. And so give attention to that uh, as you celebrate this July 4th. So... Today we're going to be continuing our study in Hebrews. Um, Daniel has been taking us through this very potent book. I pray you guys have gotten a tremendous amount out of it. I know I certainly have. And, and even though he's been kind of hiding the ball a little bit, um, I think if you've been paying attention, you might be able to tease out what the book of Hebrews is all about. Can anybody guess what the book of Hebrews is all about? Ah, some of you have been paying attention, the rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, it's about Jesus. And last week we got a warning not to neglect this great salvation that we have been hearing about. Um, and this week uh, we're going to be able to simply dig deeper into what this great salvation is. And that's what we're going to be talking about, the simple message of the gospel. And that simple message is the reality that we are sinners. And being a sinner simply means that in some way we have not lived up to God's perfect standards. That's all it means. God is perfect and we are not. And because of this, we are rightfully subject to God's wrath and judgment, except for those two beautiful words that we see throughout Scripture, but God, <laughs> because in his love and mercy, he sent Jesus, his son, to take the wrath for us upon the cross and to pay a price that we could never pay. And for those who accept that sacrifice, yes, it is that simple. You don't need to do anything else. You simply need to acknowledge and accept that sacrifice. God forgives us and allows us to begin a new relationship with him as if we were perfect. And then he promises that we can carry that relationship into eternity. That's the gospel. <laughs> that is the good news. And that is the great salvation that we cannot afford to neglect. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't neglect this reality, because if you do, how are you not going to be judged? Rightfully so because of the high price that God had to pay in order to provide us with that forgiveness. And so now the writer of Hebrews is going to spend time giving greater detail about what this salvation looks like. He wants us to understand how truly great it is. And in some ways, 
it was as if that first section that Daniel covered last week was the stick, right? The warning not to neglect. And this week, he's going to dangle before us the carrot, which in and of itself is an amazing thought to contemplate because it's as if someone gives you an amazing gift. It's as if somebody bought you a Tesla and is now going to try to convince you to take the Tesla. (laughs) That almost seems silly. Why wouldn't you take it? And it's both a testimony to the goodness of God and the richness of his grace that after this great salvation, after paying the price for our sins, after taking the wrath on our behalf, he now takes the time to sell it to us and to say, hey, won't you please come and accept this wonderful gift that I've given you? But it's also a testimony to the depravity of man that it's even necessary. You would think that we would all be running to take a hold of this amazing salvation that God offers to us. And yet we don't. And here we are. So we're going to be covering a large section of Scripture. um, But what we will be clear throughout this section of Scripture is that while humankind is the beneficiary of this great salvation, ultimately salvation is all about who? Thank you, Greg. (laughs) Someone's paying attention. That's right. Ultimately, it is all about Jesus. And we're going to see that through today's um, scripture. And this is summarized in Ephesians 1. Paul summarizes this big section of scripture we're going to be covering is really um, summarized in this small section of Ephesians where Paul says this in 1, 7 through 10. In him, we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Can we bring this down just a little bit? I feel like I'm a little loud. Thank you. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Why? As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. And so man is the means through which God is going to do this. And the question is going to arise, why and how? Because it's all about Jesus, but why does God choose to use man as his instrumentality? You know, the mystery of salvation is not what God is doing. Because God tells us all along throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament what he is doing. He tells us that he is bringing salvation to man. That he's going to save us from our worst selves and he's going to deliver us from our sins through the blood of Jesus. The real mystery is why. (laughs) Why choose man? And we're going to see the writer of Psalms, who the writer of Hebrews will quote, is going to ask the same question. So let's take a read at our section of Scripture today. We're looking at Hebrews 2, so pull out your Bibles, and we're going to be covering verses 5 through 18. So I've got a long read, and we've got a lot to talk about, but let's begin. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, and through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Father, I want to pray as we sang this morning that we would hear the voice of the Spirit, that you would speak to us about this great salvation, Father, that you would stir our hearts to know the wonders of the work that you have done, the works that you prepared before the beginning of time, and that you have carried out through your Son, Jesus. Father, may it create wonder and awe in us that we would want to give you the glory you deserve, Father, and that it would cause us to repent and want to make that turn from our old self to live the new life that you have called us to. We thank you for your love in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as I have just read, we are covering a pretty significant section of Scripture, and buried in here is a tremendous amount of pretty deep theology. Um, You could take any part section of this, and you could spend multiple sermons on them. And so I'm going to recommend that everybody go home and spend some time reading over it again themselves and see what God teaches you. Because I'm sure God has many more lessons to teach us out of these scriptures. And today we're only really going to skin the surface and try to take sort of a a top view of these sections. And we're going to break it down into four sections. We're going to be covering verses 5 through 8, in which we're going to talk about identity. um, And and what that means to man and what that means for all of us. Verses 8... Uh, B, so verses 5 to 8A, verses 8B to 10, we're going to be talking about Jesus, because ultimately it is all about Jesus, the author and finisher of salvation. And then verses 11 through 13, we're going to revisit identity, but from the perspective of our identity in Christ, which should be the only identity that we ever really take. And then verses 14 through 18, we're going to talk about the wonder that Christ identifies with us. And I don't know how often we think about that, but the absolute amazing idea that God was willing to identify with man. And the writer in Hebrews, as he begins verse 5, is really going to be returning to an earlier theme that that Daniel covered in chapter 1. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, we talked about the superiority of Jesus, that Jesus was superior to Moses He was superior to the prophets, and he was superior to the angels. And that all of these other uh, people and beings, they had a message to deliver, and they had delivered the message of salvation. 
But then Jesus comes along, and he doesn't just deliver the message. He is the final message. Jesus is God's ultimate statement of deliverance and salvation. And so we begin chapter 2 with a warning that Daniel gave us last week, not to neglect this message that Jesus represents. And now the writer wants us to know and understand just how special this salvation is. And he says in verse 5, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. See, we take it for granted that God had to save man. But Hebrews remind us that he didn't. God had other creation that he could have chosen to, um, to save. And he goes on to say, It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Hebrews begins by noting that this salvation is not offered to angels, but instead offered to man. That is part of what the Bible means by subjecting the world to come. Angels were not given the authority to rule. Man has been given that authority to govern, including, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, judging angels. He says this in verses 1 through 3. He says, When you have a grievance against one another, do you dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know what the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? And so he tells us that this authority that has been given to us to rule and to govern will be even over the angels. And so we see the world to come is going to be subject to the authority of man. And Hebrews points back to the reality that this was laid out long ago. He turns to Psalms 8 as a poetic prophecy of this deep spiritual reality. And he says, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, when you first read this, it's a little unclear if he's talking about mankind in general or if he's specifically talking about Jesus, who we know ultimately is going to have all authority. And the best answer to that question is really both. (laughs) He's talking about both, and he switches back and forth. He says, God has given men, in the universal sense of mankind, authority to rule. But he has given Jesus Christ, the man, the ultimate authority because he is meant to be and is king of kings, lord of lords, and ruler over all. And he's going to make this especially clear in verse 10 where he he uses this beautiful phrase, this um, word that is going to be translated founder. If you go look at the, the Greek, it actually means captain, that he is the captain of our salvation, the leader that brings us into this salvation. But first here, Hebrews opens up with this wonderful question, what is man? And it is a question of identity. You know, we live in times where identity has become a hot-button issue. But the reality of it is, it always has been. Because everyone is seeking to understand their identity. Man is not alone in this. Every creation wants to understand its identity. Confusion over identity is what caused Satan to fall. (laughs) We are told that Satan said, I shall be like God. It is what tempted Adam and Eve. And it was the first question that God asked man after the fall. 
After Adam and Eve sin, the Bible describes what happens next. It says that the Lord God comes looking for them in the garden, and they're hiding themselves. And he calls out to Adam, and he says, where are you? And Adam says, we hid ourselves because we were naked. And you know what God responds? Who told you you were naked? What a wonderfully profound question. You see, God wants to understand what voices are you listening to? Who told you who you are? Who defines you? Who told you you are worthless? Who told you to be ashamed? Who told you to fear? Or for some people, the opposite. Who told you to be proud? Or who told you you could live life without consequences and accountability? What voices are you listening to? Who are you allowing to define you other than God? And so many of the conversations we are having today are not new. The reality is identity apart from any identity found in Christ is sin. If you identify in being some kind of Atlas who can hold up the world on his shoulders, that's sin. If your identity is in your work or your bank account, or if your identity is in your beauty and your desire to look like a supermodel, if your identity is in your car or your music or your nationality or your culture, it is sin. The struggle about identity is not about one issue. It's about how man understands his place in the universe and any identity apart from being God's creation and made for his purpose. It's sin. That's all there is to it. But Hebrews is getting at something even deeper than this. Because identity is a great part of the mystery of the gospel. And the question that we come back to is, what is man that God would choose him to become the conduit of salvation? First Peter tells us that even the angels long to look into this. First Peter uh, 1.10 tells us that concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. And it goes on to say in verse 12, it was revealed to them they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced through the good news by the Holy Spirit, things into which even angels long to look. See, the angels are astounded by this notion that God is going to bring salvation to man. Why man? Why aren't the angels given the same opportunity at redemption? You know, man thinks so much of himself. We think we're so special and so high in the, the hierarchy of things. But I just want to read to you the description of Satan, who is a fallen angel. Listen to what is said about him. Because it'll give you a glimpse into why it must be so confusing for the angels that God has chosen mankind. This is what it said in Ezekiel 28. It says, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering, sardis and topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle. You were crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. I mean, that is quite a description of an angel, perfect in beauty. Now compare that to the description of man in Genesis 2-7. Here's what the Bible says. The Lord God formed man from the dust from the ground. <laughs> That's quite a difference. <laughs> We're just a ball of dust. <laughs> We're clay shaped into our form, and then God breathed life into us. 
Can we understand how this might be just like a little confounding to the angels? There are these multifaceted creatures. It appears that Satan was covered in jewels, and here is man, a ball of dust. But isn't this consistent with who our God is? Isn't this what we read even in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, when it says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise? That God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong? That God chose what is low and despised in the world? Even the things that are not, just a ball of dust, to bring nothing to things that are. And he ends this in verse 31. Why does he do this? So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's all about Jesus. <laughs> in all things and in every way, God alone is to be glorified. And this is true even in his plan of salvation. And so, yes, he chose a ball of dust to be the instruments through which ultimately all glory would be brought to his son Jesus. We are that conduit. It's a special place, but it's made special because of God's purpose, not because of who we are. That is the duality of the statement. What is man that you are mindful of him? And yet God has chosen man, lowly man, to be this instrument. And that is where our scripture leads us. Picking up in the second half of verse 8, it says this. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, and I, I like the phrase captain better, should make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. The writer here confronts the reality that currently we don't see the fulfillment of this promise that God will put everything under the authority of man. But what do we see? We see Jesus. <laughs> That's what we see. And if we look to Jesus, we will see the fulfillment of the promise. And this is true for so many of God's promises. We are promised a day when there will be no more tears and no more pain. But that's not today. But what do we see? We see Jesus. We are promised heavenly bodies with no sickness. But that's not today. But what do we see? We see Jesus. And the writer makes it clear that there are two truths that we should see when we see Jesus. One is the truth that Jesus has led the way. He was the first to experience resurrection and the new life with a glorified body. And we can look to him and see the promise fulfilled. That's what 1 John 3, 2 tells us. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We see Jesus but the other reality is that we can trust in God's promise because of Jesus' sacrifice. You see, when things are hard and we don't know what God is doing, what do we do? Look to Jesus. <laughs> because if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, 
how will he not give us everything else? Jesus was lowered from his place of glory to become a man, to bring us salvation so that by the grace of God, he might taste death on behalf of everyone. And so we can look to Jesus, see his glory, and see the inheritance that is promised to us. But we can also look to Jesus and recognize the price that was paid for that glory and trust every promise that we find in salvation. Hebrews then continues on with what I believe to be one of the most astounding statements in Scripture. I say that about a lot of things, but this one is truly astounding because this Scripture bridges us towards our conclusion. But listen to what he says. This this is just, I'm going to read this, and then we need to pause. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist. So it starts by telling us that Jesus created all things for himself in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder or the captain of their salvation perfect. Through how? By being worshipped and glorified? No. Perfect through suffering. I'm sorry? First of all, was Jesus not perfect? Was he lacking in something? And second of all, it was right that he suffer for us? Now we're going to start with the first part. Clearly that's not what the writer is saying because Jesus is perfect in his holiness. Jesus is perfect in his righteousness. And Jesus is perfect in every way. In fact, we are dependent on his perfection because our salvation was perfected because of his perfection. And so what was perfected in Christ by his suffering was salvation for us. It was made perfect by his sacrifice because he was the perfect sacrifice. Not deserving of death, he still partook in death. Having never sinned, he became sin for us that in him we would become the righteousness of God. And as such, Jesus became the perfect example and the perfect man. In Romans, Paul tells us he was the second Adam who completed what the first Adam failed to complete. In Jesus, man became all that God intended in the first place, the fullness of what God meant when he declared all the way back In Genesis 1.26, when God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. That was fulfilled in Jesus, not in Adam. It's easy to read that statement and take it for granted, but how would it be possible otherwise for man who was made of dust to become the image and likeness of his creator? I don't know. But we see Jesus. (laughs) And that's the only answer. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us that this Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, through his sacrifice, bridges us over into the family of God so we can identify as his children. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. 
And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. Those are all quotes from the Old Testament scriptures that would be worthy of studying in context. And that's why our brother Daniel has encouraged us to be reading through the Bible. Because the richness of Hebrews is going to come out as we read these statements in context. And so I pray many of you have taken up that challenge and will continue to do so. In doing so, it'll give us a fuller picture of this wonderful salvation that we find in Jesus. The reality that this salvation was talked about throughout the Old Testament and then brought to fulfillment in the New Testament. But for our purposes, what is important is that the writer here is pointing out that Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. That he has brought us into this wonderful inheritance in which we are the children of God. Behold, I and the children that God has given me. Not only are we in the family, but we have been given to Jesus by the Father. A prize, sort of to speak, for his sacrifice. And here is the promise that comes from that, as is promised in many places through Jesus' own words. But in John 6.39, he says this, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should lose nothing. And Jesus prays this again in verse 17, affirming this reality. He says, those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that scripture might be fulfilled. These should be incredibly comforting texts and a wonderfully comforting words spoken by our Savior himself. You know, you hear a lot about eternal security of our salvation, and that's simply what it is. It's this basic idea that our security does not come from what we do or how well we perform or how uh, excellent we are in following after God or following after the scriptures or being able to do the things that God calls us to do. Because you know what? We're going to fail. That is guaranteed. But that's not what brings us salvation. Our eternal salvation and security comes from this promise that those who belong to God, who have been given to Jesus, Jesus will never let go. He secures us before the Father. You know, the best picture I've ever had is, uh, I heard someone say a description of, it's like a father crossing the street with his little child. And the little child is holding the father's hand and they get into the middle of the street and something happens and the child becomes startled. And what does the child do? He lets go because he's been startled. But it doesn't matter because the father doesn't let go. The father isn't startled. The father's not fearful. And his grip on that child is secure. We may become fearful. We may become anxious. We may let go of God every now and then. But our big brother Jesus has us firmly in hand. And he's going to carry us over into eternity exactly as he promised. And that we can rest in. Now Hebrews is going to close our section of Scripture today by bringing us back to the issue of identity. But as I alluded to earlier, God is going to flip the script, sort of to speak here. We've been talking about our need to identify in Christ. But like everything else we ever do, everything we find in Scripture, anything that God commands us or calls us to do, guess what? He's already done it. <laughs> God always leads the way. He is always preeminent. He is always first. It's one of those amazing biblical principles that this amazing God who sits in heaven and deserves all glory and honor, there's nothing he would ask of us that he has not done himself. 
Think about that. God has no obligations. And yet in his mercy and in his grace, he extends himself far beyond what one would ever expect from a God. You know, I always remember sharing the gospel with a friend of mine who was from India. Um, and he is a polytheist. Um, and he had been sharing about his gods. He had been telling me about the sacrifices they make and the necessity of bringing almost daily sacrifices to these gods, usually of fruit or flowers, and they present it before these idols um, as a means of appeasing uh, their gods. And, um, you know, it's really amazing when you come from a polytheistic culture that you're very accepting and very open to any other God. And so I began to share with him about Jesus. And he was like, oh, yes, it's wonderful, it's wonderful, wonderful. You know, Jesus sounds wonderful. He's like all of our gods. All religions are based on the same principles. And I said, no, not actually. <laughs> um, and I began to share with him. I began to say, you know, the principles may sound the same. But I said, here's the reality. Here's where, where Christianity is different. He's unlike your gods who demand constant sacrifices, God knew that it would never be enough. And so he sent his son to become the one and final sacrifice for us so that no other sacrifices would be necessary. And I got to tell you, this very open, completely changed. He's like, well, that's just stupid. That's silly. No God would ever do that. <laughs> and I was like, no, our God did that. And I'll be honest with you, I've had the same reaction from a Muslim friend of mine, again, sharing the gospel with him. And he said to me, he says, he says, imagine a God in need. Imagine a God who becomes hungry and has to eat and has to deal with human excrement. And he said to me, you Christians have no idea how offensive that is to us Muslims. No, I do have an idea. <laughs> But you see, sometimes non-Christians understand the wonder of the gospel a lot better than Christians do. They don't take for granted what it means that Jesus gave up his glory and came down to this earth to become like man. They're offended by it, is the reality. And that's what is so offensive so often about the gospel. But that is what we read. And here's what the writer of Hebrews tells us, beginning in verse 14. Since then for the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, like my Indian buddy or my Muslim buddy, this should cause us to go, wow. <laughs> It should cause us to be in awe. I won't belabor the point, but I want to point out why Jesus had to identify with us. Because we have to remember why it was necessary. Because in this identity, he was made to be propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is just a fancy word for appeasing. Something my Indian friend would understand very well. The need to appease the gods. 
God the Father's anger needed to be appeased. Why? Because God is rightly and justly angry at the sins of man, our sins. Not just because it offends His holiness, but because it hurts us, His creation. We just read what Jesus' sacrifice freed us from, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. We are slaves to our fears. We are slaves to our sins, which leads us to death and puts us in the power of Satan himself, who has the power of death. And it makes God mad. And out of God's sense of justice, he has to punish those who are causing the suffering, who are causing the fear, and who through their sins perpetuate death, which God never intended. But you see, that is us. <laughs> and we are rightly due that wrath. And so God, what is the solution? Well, God came up with a solution. He sent His Son in our image and likeness to do what we could not do, to live perfectly without sin, and yet still put himself up on a cross and bear the full wrath of God's anger in order to appease God's righteous judgment. And by doing so, by identifying with us, Jesus now allows us to identify with him that through the power of the Holy Spirit, He can now make us into the full image of what He intended, the image and likeness of Jesus, because we see Jesus freed from the power of sin and freed from the power of death, the carrot of the gospel. But God doesn't end there because He's not finished yet. All that are the promises that will be fulfilled in eternity. But notice what He ends with, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, Jesus didn't come die on a cross, free us from sin and death, climb up on a cloud, fly back into heaven, and just like, go relax. <laughs> no. The Bible tells us that Jesus stands, not even seated, stands at the side of God, interceding on behalf of us. And that he is our present help. That was Jesus' promise before he left. I am with you always, even until the end of the age. What more can be said about such a great salvation? Amen. We're going to pray, and then Pastor Daniel's going to come up and lead us through communion, which we have an opportunity to share today. But um, I don't want to pray before extending that opportunity. You've heard the good news today. If you have never accepted this great salvation that has been laid out for you today, we want to give you that opportunity. And that opportunity will be through communion, will be through the after, end of the service. We always want to give that opportunity. And I would encourage you now, mate, just raise your hand. Let us know so we can pray for you, reach out to you. Um, because we want... No one to walk out of here without the promises that we've heard today that we see in Jesus. Is there anyone that would want to 
Take that gift that God so freely gives this morning. Amen. Well, let's pray, and then we will be led through communion. Lord God, boy, thank you for your word. Father, we've sung this morning of your holiness. We've heard of your goodness. We've been taught of your great salvation. And Father, we want to now celebrate that in communion as we do this in remembrance of Jesus because we see Jesus, the author and finisher of our salvation. And then we want to worship you for the goodness that we've heard this morning. Father, may you be honored in everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.